From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Big news for the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. The Biden administration is making it the first flagship urban refuge in the country. What does that mean? More money, for one thing. That'll go toward making sure that everything is available for all audiences. It is truly a refuge for all, and this is a huge announcement, and it really helps us to achieve our mission. We'll talk about what changes are coming to the refuge. Then, now that there are wolf pups that have been born in Colorado, what does that mean for plans to reintroduce the species to the state? And even before the pandemic, Colorado was struggling to find solutions to a behavioral health crisis with rising rates of suicide, drug overdoses, and mental illness. Could new legislation help turn things around? Your Evergreen membership helps fuel the programs you and your neighbors rely on. But if your credit card has changed or expired, your gift won't reach us. Please take a minute to check if your monthly membership is still active. Better yet, switch to giving monthly from your checking account and never worry about your credit card expiration date again. Call 800-722-4449 to update your giving information today. And thank you for your generous monthly support of CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. I-70 on a Saturday is often packed with folks driving from Denver trying to get to the mountains. But there's actually a slice of nature nestled in the metro area, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. It's 15,000 acres of prairies, wetlands, woodlands. It's land that many tribal nations used before their forced removal. It was once a wartime manufacturing site, and the Biden administration just announced the next chapter in its long history. It will become the first flagship urban refuge in the country. David Lucas is the refuge manager. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Avery. Before we talk about the Rocky Mountain Arsenal's future, how did a wildlife refuge end up in an urban area with downtown Denver on the skyline? The Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge has a long history, um, and it began as a U.S. Army installation. Um, just just the day after Pearl Harbor, they began work on creating the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And then over the years, um, it had that military purpose. And then in 1987, um, cleanup began, and it, a vision evolved that turned this place into the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge which has then allowed it to become this asset for our community. This is a wildlife refuge. Tell me about the kind of animals that people can see there right now. The wildlife refuge is short and mixed grass prairie. So all those prairie species, whether it's grassland nesting songbirds, migratory birds coming through, larger animals like our bison, or if you're lucky, um, you can see some of the animals that inhabit the prairie dog colonies like the black-footed ferret, one of the most endangered species in North America, or badgers. This year, badgers have been quite a show. There's a mother badger and her young right off the wildlife drive. Oh, wow. And the big news is that this is going to be a flagship urban refuge. So tell me a little bit more about why the Biden administration chose to make that designation and what it means for the refuge. Well, we are thrilled um, to make this huge announcement that the Wildlife Refuge will receive this recurring annual funding, $1 million a year to help us to connect with our communities. Our neighbors and our community is what's most important to us. We are here. These are your public lands. 
everyone listening, these are your public lands, and we want you to come out and enjoy them. And this funding will allow us to do more work to improve the infrastructure, to make more things available for all audiences. We're going to put a bunch of effort just out of the gate into Spanish language and making sure that everything that everyone comes out is available for all audiences. It is truly a refuge for all, and this is a huge announcement, and it really helps us to achieve our mission. Tell me a little bit more about how you're expanding the Spanish language programming that the Arsenal offers. Yeah, we started doing some Spanish tours, some Spanish language tours a couple of years ago. But what we're actually right out of the gate is we are hiring two bilingual rangers. Right out of the gate, two bilingual rangers to start that work. We're also working on translation services. Um, if you notice, everything on Facebook and Twitter now is is both in English and in Spanish, which, you know, it's one more step for us. But I think it's the right step to communicate to everybody. Um, you know, 75% of the communities that surround the Rocky Mountain Arsenal Wildlife Refuge are Latinx or African-American. These are communities that we have not traditionally connected with in, in the conservation world. Um, it's time. It's beyond time. Um, and we need to we need to make a diligent effort in 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 welcoming um, those communities to what we do on the wildlife refuge. So like you mentioned, the money, it, that's what's involved in this designation as well. It actually doubles the budget. So working toward making this place more accessible, what other sorts of things can you do with more resources? Well, one thing we're really excited about is we're building back better and we're thinking about sustainability. And while we have some some great things on the ground at the Wildlife Refuge, like solar panels, we really want to move into electric fleet and we really want to have charging stations and we really want to be able to make these things available. So yes, the second we were told we were receiving these funds, one of the first things we did was issue a purchase order to start getting some electric vehicles on the way. Um, so we can model and show that these things are important to us on the Wildlife Refuge and it's our, our little dent into the climate change battle. So you're talking about adding electric vehicles, making this place more sustainable. These lands, they're also surrounded by neighborhoods, including Commerce City. It's battled pollution from the coming from the Suncor oil refinery. How did those neighbors feel about this undisturbed space next to them? We have come so far over the last couple of years at, at becoming welcoming um, to our neighbors. It, it is a fact that when we all started in our career, in my career, you know, um, we were protecting land and putting up fences and keeping people out. We have to change that model for conservation. Our job now is to welcome as many young people as we can and show them that they can have a career and that they can take my job someday. And make and that starts right at their backyard, right at their doorstep, at open spaces that are so close. So our neighbors in Commerce City and in Montbello and in other parts of Denver have been wanting access. And yes, this, these new access points that we've opened, these new trailheads that lead right into their communities shows that this is their wildlife refuge and that they are welcome. And we hope that they are taking advantage of it. And like I said, I hope someday these neighbors and these young people are the ones that come and take my job. In this refuge, y'all welcomed a lot of people during the COVID-19 pandemic. How did the visitor numbers change? The global pandemic was an eye-opener, and I, and I think it was a benefit to us in public lands management because it showed just how valuable nature is. None of us could go visit with others. We couldn't go out. We couldn't go to movie theaters. We couldn't go to our usual locations. So where did people go? Thankfully, they went to nature. 
and nature is healing, and it helped people through the pandemic. Our visitation the year before the pandemic was 450,000 visitors at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal Wildlife Refuge. We had over 750,000 visitors once the pandemic began, and that is only the people that drive through and we capture on the road counters. We probably had over a million visitors on our wildlife refuges during the pandemic. That's a lot of people. Do you expect that to keep up this year? I do. I think now that people have made the connection with the wildlife refuge, I think they will keep coming back. Everything we hear is that they enjoy this space and they enjoy what they get to see and they get, enjoy that connection that they get to have with the nature out there. So I think they will keep coming. I think they will keep bringing their friends. And I think that, that those visitation rates are likely to only increase. And you're managing the land, you're managing animals, you're also managing people and now a lot more of them. What does that mean for this space? Do you worry about erosion or those sorts of things? Thankfully, um, we were able to spend years planning and, and really thinking through how we were going to welcome this amount of visitors to this wildlife refuge. We set aside a large amount of the 15,000 acres for wildlife and for habitat conservation. But we were also able to set aside a large portion, 2,500, 3,000 acres of land that would be intensively used by people. And I think that balance is what we've been able to achieve. Um, it is possible to balance heavy visitation and our wildlife objectives. What message do you hope that this sends to other cities that may want to create or expand similar spaces that may be heavily used but also allow people to get into nature? That is a wonderful question, and we have been talking about that as we've had these celebrations and these events over the last couple of weeks. But the communities and the relationship between those communities here and their wildlife refuge is an example that can be replicated across the country. When you have these open spaces and you have these areas that are so close to communities that need nature, all it takes is a little work, working together, and we can make them into something amazing for future generations. Do you think about how spaces like this interact with, say, mountain trails that I know also get a lot of use but aren't necessarily designed to? Is that part of your management consideration? Yes. From a biological perspective, we are looking at the current time at how all of these lands are interconnected. We are concerned about corridors for wildlife. We are concerned about corridors for people. Um, so we want to have that interconnectability, and we also want to have that ability for people to safely transit um, their public lands. As we get more people and we get more users, it's, it's essential that people have the ability to get from one place to another safely on trails and without, you know, creating impacts and damages to the habitat that we're trying to protect. This is going to be the first flagship urban refuge in the country. Do you know if the Biden administration is planning more? The Urban Wildlife Conservation Program is a priority for the Biden administration and for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We will continue to be investing um, into this program across the country. There are numerous urban national wildlife refuges throughout the country, and we expect that many, many more will be designated as flagships in the coming years. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing about the refuge. Thank you, Avery. David Lucas is the manager for the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. The refuge is open every day from sunrise to sunset and is free to visitors. 
It is the pup date wolf watchers have been waiting for. Last week, state biologists confirmed a pair of Colorado wolves has a new litter. It's the first time wild pups have been born in the state since the 1940s, when hunters and trappers eradicated Colorado's native wolves. CPR's Sam Brash is here to explain the news and what it means for the reintroduction plan to reintroduce the predators. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Avery. Colorado Parks and Wildlife says that it's now observed three wolf pups in Jackson County. The litter could even include more animals. How did biologists track these guys down? It's a bit of a long, strange story, but it really started a couple of years ago. That's when this one lone gray wolf wandered into Jackson County. It was this black wolf that was wearing a, a really large uh, radio tracking collar. So it had been identified before, and biologists traced it back to the Snake River Pack, which is a pack that lives either in Yellowstone National Park or just outside National Park. It was identified as male, which will be important in a second. And then later, uh, you know, this year, the animal linked up with this other uncollared wolf. Colorado Parks and Wildlife had this wolf tranquilized and attached its own tracking collar. The second wolf was also identified as male. So you got two males. So biologists weren't really thinking about pups from this pair. So the biologists just thought that two male wolves decided to keep each other company? Absolutely, yeah. State biologists say that this is a pretty common behavior for wolves to link up as hunting partners. Uh, That actually earned a joke from Governor Polis. He said that the state might even have its first gay wolves. (laughs) So what changed? Uh, So remember, each of these wolves had tracking collars, which, you know, state biologists watched pretty closely. And the location data showed one of the wolves appeared to have retreated to a den. Now, that made zero sense, right? Because that's That's something... hunting partners. That's, that's not a hunting partner behavior, right? That's that's a that's denning, you know. So f- the female wolf uh, had retreated, or or the supposedly male wolf had retreated to this den. Colorado biologists called up their counterparts in Wyoming that had originally collared this wolf, and they said, oh, whoops, uh, we actually have some genetic information here. That male wolf is a female wolf. We just made a documentation error. Okay, so this wasn't a pair of male hunting wolves. No, these were a pair of uh, straight wolves, if you want to use that human analogy, straight wolves. And uh, when the biologists observed the den site later on, they observed three pups multiple times. They expect there could be any, you know, even more since uh, wolf letters tend to be like four to six pups. So this all comes as Colorado Parks and Wildlife is trying to figure out how to reintroduce wolves. If the predators are coming here on their own and breeding on their own, is it necessary? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, hunters and ranchers opposed to reintroduction say no. This is actually one of their key arguments during the, the ballot question over whether to reintroduce wolves. They said if, if wolves are going to return to the state on their own, that, that could be a good process. That would be a natural process. Give the time for wolves to adjust and people to adjust to them as well. Um Biologists disagree. They say the question here is what would create a viable, self-sustaining wolf population. And they say that's only possible if wolves are actively brought back to the state as well as migrating in naturally. So they don't think that just this migration of a pair every now and then is actually going to bring enough in large numbers? Yeah, because, you know, uh, wolf reintroduction started in Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago. In that time, only a few wolves have made it all the way down to Colorado. Uh, you know, it's remarkable that these two wolves have, have found it here and been able to breed. But the question is, will their pups actually have another wolf uh, to breed with when they get to the, be that age? Do you know if the state's readjusting its plans at all based on the pups? 
You know, not really. The plan for reintroduction uh, is still going far forward. Like under the ballot initiative, they have to get it done by the end of uh, 2023. Um, but the ballot language doesn't include much detail beyond that. So like where will Colorado get these wolves? How many should it release? Where should it release them on the Western Slope? Um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has formed a technical working group of biologists and former state wildlife officials and all kinds of people to decide those sort of questions. And I'm sure they will consider the location of wolves already in Colorado, but the basic plans for reintroduction haven't changed. So I guess that those plans are separate, though, from the work that's happening around these pups. Reintroduction aside, Colorado does have to manage the wolves that are here now. Yeah, they absolutely do. And I think... One thing most people don't realize is that Colorado alone has to manage these wolves. Previously, wolves had been a federally endangered species. That meant that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had governing authority over those wolves. That has changed since President Trump removed, former President Trump removed gray wolves uh, from the endangered species list last year. That handed management of the species over to the state. It's allowed states like Idaho to approve, you know, far more extensive wolf hunting, but um here in Colorado, they're still a protected species in Colorado Parks and Wildlife paths to manage them according to the law. And just to be totally clear, these wolves, they might no longer be on the federal endangered species list, but they are still protected in Colorado. Yes. Uh, to be really, really clear, killing a wolf is a serious, serious offense up to a year in prison and a $100,000 fine and a loss of hunting privileges. Well, let's leave it here. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, Avery. Sam Brash covers climate and the environment for CPR News. You can read more about the new litter of Colorado wolf pups at CPR.org. A century ago, Pueblo was digging out from one of the most devastating floods in Colorado history. Shauna Lewis found the disaster had a long-lasting economic impact on the city. On the evening of June 3, 1921, a warning call came in from upstream on the Arkansas River. The river is rising. The tributaries are all out of their banks. There's a massive amount of water headed your way. That's Peggy Wilcox, who helped research Mad River, the Pueblo County Historical Society's new book about the flood. That night, the river broke through the levees. Within minutes, the deluge rushed into the low-lying areas of downtown Pueblo, ripping apart buildings, igniting fires, and wiping out bridges. High water topped 14 feet. Larry Green, who also helped research the book, says the torrent swept two passenger trains into the river, not far from the Union Depot. The cars were wooden and began to float. They began to roll over in slow motion. Most of the people managed to get out. The next morning, floodwaters were still five feet deep in places. Wreckage and heavy mud piled up everywhere. Hundreds were dead or missing. More rain fell while rescuers searched for survivors and city leaders planned shelters, cleanup, and disease prevention. Wilcox says her family escaped to higher ground during the flood. Then, when the water receded... Their house was still there, unlike so many, but it was off its foundations. After the flood, they were able to get it moved up the hill with horses and some sort of ingenuity. Some buildings were still standing in the flood's aftermath. Pueblo City Planner and Historic Preservation Staffer Wade Broadhead says a number of the city's important buildings, like City Hall, had been recently constructed prior to the flood. Those buildings took it a lot better because construction styles had changed just before the flood, and so there was a bunch of advancements in concrete construction and the way they built brick buildings. Still, the rampaging waters ravaged hundreds of homes and businesses, destroyed train tracks, and shut down utilities. 
CSU Pueblo history professor Jonathan Rees says along with the immediate recovery, Pueblo had to mount a colossal rebuilding effort. The first thing that has to happen is that Pueblo has to make sure that it doesn't go through a terrible flood like that again. By 1923, Puebloans are putting in new flood protection measures, including moving the river channel about a third of a mile and building a nearly three-mile-long levee to keep it in its new course. This is the era before big government. This is pre-FDR. This is pre-New Deal. So the capital that goes in to make those improvements all has to be local. So all this money that could have been going to growing businesses all around Pueblo ends up being invested in things that needed to be done. The flood control work was managed by the newly formed Pueblo Conservancy District and paid for through county property fees. The bonds issued for the project weren't paid off until the 1950s. Train historian Larry Green says in order to form the Conservancy District, state legislators from northern communities had to be on board. It basically became a political deal. You vote for ours and we'll vote for yours. Green says the northern delegation got Pueblo's support of building the Moffat Tunnel. That would give Denver a rail connection west, through the Continental Divide and the mountains. You could almost look at the writing on the wall that less and less traffic would come south. So very slowly, over a long period of time, less and less transcontinental traffic moved through Pueblo, which really changed the dynamic of operations here in the city. Green says since the tunnel was built, the number of railroad employees in Pueblo has dropped substantially, to less than 500 today. Also, the 1920s were a prosperous era that Reese says the city wasn't in a position to capitalize on, and the opportunity cost of the flood caused the most economic damage to Pueblo. I sort of imagine that if downtown Pueblo had never been hit by the flood, Pueblo could be what Colorado Springs is now, a late-blooming, post-World War II growth city. The Pueblo Conservancy District just completed major repairs on the levee built after the flood. It'll sport new features like walking paths and pedestrian bridges, all parts of plans for expanded recreation along the Arkansas River, including an updated whitewater park. Along with the trendy historic Riverwalk, revitalized Union Avenue District, and restored Union Depot, more projects are in the works to continue improving areas affected by the flood a century ago. For KRCC News, I'm Shauna Lewis in Pueblo. Read more about the historic flood at CPR.org. You can also see photos of Pueblo back then and what it looks like now. We've made the next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. The author is pastor and counselor Paula Stone Williams. Her memoir is about walking in other people's shoes. Williams is a trans woman. She writes about all that she lost and learned and gained after her transition at age 60. The book is called As a Woman. Pick up a copy and join Ryan Warner on June 30th for a virtual discussion. You can ask the author questions and we'll record the event to air on Colorado Matters. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. When we come back, new resources to help the state take on a behavioral health crisis. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. For the past year, the country has been talking about policing and the black community. 
one activist is keeping the conversation going at a pivotal moment. Our system has created the monster that we see, and it's going to take the people to demand change in order for a paradigm shift to occur. The new episode of Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is available on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you listen. Even before COVID-19, Colorado was in a behavioral health crisis. The state's suicide rate has consistently been among the highest in the nation. Drug overdoses are increasing, and people with mental health disorders crowd emergency rooms and jails. By most accounts, the pandemic made things considerably worse. Well, the legislature that just ended tackled some of those issues in big ways, including with major cash. I'm joined by Mo Keller, Director of Advocacy for Mental Health Colorado, for a look at some of the highlights. Mo, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. The pandemic exacerbated a number of mental health conditions like anxiety and depression. The El Paso County coroner said recently that he attributes increased drug overdose deaths in 2020 partly to the pandemic stressors. Do you think COVID increased pressure on the legislature to act on these problems? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, It is undeniable that the amount of uh, stress and depression has uh, really skyrocketed um, because of the lockdown and, and all of the uncertainty that followed. So we had people who lost jobs, people who had were furloughed, people and didn't know if they were coming back, people who had job cuts. Um, so there was a lot of financial stress, a lot of uh, financial depression. Then you had marital stress. You had uh, children at home all the time. So you had controlling the children while you were supposed to be working from home. All that stress added in. There was a, a person who said to me the other day that the national psyche was under attack. Hmm. And that's true because our whole nation shut down. And so, you know, we couldn't fly anywhere. We couldn't take vacations easily. Um, We couldn't go to the local restaurant with our family and have a little fun. We couldn't even, uh, at least initially, we were not even able to visit our family um, to be together at Christmas, to be together at Thanksgiving. Uh, So it had a huge um, uh, emotional and mental Uh, impact on people. And we have seen that in our uh, screenings at Mental Health Colorado. We have anonymous screenings, and uh, the screenings have have just skyrocketed for individuals who are testing positive for uh, anxiety and or depression. And so there's just so many of these stressors compounded for so long and without, like you're saying, the social support networks that we would normally rely on. Right. So let's talk about this was a problem even before the before the pandemic. So this is just compounded. So let's talk a little bit about what the legislature did, Um, starting with something that's actually a combination of federal and state action. Last year, Congress created a three digit national hotline for mental health crises and suicide calls. The number is 988. This year, the legislature came up with a plan to implement that in Colorado. Why is a new hotline needed? Um, First of all, I do want to emphasize to all the listeners that 988 will not be operable until a year from now. So it'll be July of 2022. So uh, please remember that. Um, The um, federal government passed the legislation in October of last year that uh, requires all the states to adopt the same number. And, And the basic reason for that is because right now for states that even have a crisis line number, and Colorado is one of those, we've been proactive in that. It's 10 digits long. 
It's a very long number. And so as a result, people don't remember it, especially in a crisis. And so trying to truncate that into three digits, you know, people will remember that. So that's the first reason. Uh, the second is that the um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is the line we're talking about here, uh, is um, a creation of federal government through SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Agency, and the Veterans Administration, who were very concerned about the rising rate of suicides among veterans. And so they, they together put together this lifeline. It has been around about 10 years, but they were finding that people all over the country had different numbers for it, and, and, and it, they had to transfer calls to states where they didn't have a crisis number. It was a mess. And so by changing it to 988 uh, and requiring all of the um, uh, phone companies to acknowledge 988 and update their systems so that it can be transferable um, was the most expedient thing to do in terms of being um, a real service to citizens who need that. Makes a lot of sense. So if somebody's in crisis, they don't have to do a lot of research to figure out what is the number to call. Exactly. Right. Can you give me a sense of how big the demand is for a service like that in Colorado? Yes, uh, I can. So the uh, we in 2013, we are one of only two or three states in the country that actually have a statewide crisis line. And it's much broader than the suicide line that we're talking about here. Our crisis line was established after the James Holmes um, shootings at the Aurora Theater. Uh, the governor at that time and the um, legislature at that time put together uh, quite a significant amount of money to create a statewide crisis response system. Uh, and so it has the the crisis line, which is the 10-digit number I mentioned, uh, and it has um, walk-in crisis centers, uh, and it has mobile units, so that if someone calls into the line and the person on the other end is saying, uh, and by the way, it's always a person uh, in our system, uh, it's, and that's true with the uh, veterans line as well, um, if you call at 3 in the morning, you will get a live person uh, who will talk with you. Uh, so it's 24-7. Uh, so uh, you have... Um, uh, if uh, the judgment call on the part of the responder saying, okay, I think this requires um, a, a mobile unit to go out to your home or to the site to assist you with this, uh, we have that set up as well. So we have that crisis system set up. But again, um, you know, no one really remembers that 10-digit number. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about another area where the legislature acted, with, and that was in criminal justice. There was one bill in particular that was controversial. That's House Bill 1211. It deals with people in jail who are charged with crimes but haven't yet been through the judicial system. What does it do? Well, we have found over the years, and law enforcement is very much uh, uh, aware of this as well, uh, we've made police the first responders. We've made jails and prisons the mental health institutes. As a matter of fact, our prison system has about 32% 32 32 of all their inmates have a mental health condition of some sort. And so we've made the prisons and we've made the jails the new institutes. Uh, and so we have an inordinate number of individuals in the jails uh, who have substance abuse and or mental health conditions, sometimes traumatic brain injury, sometimes dementia, uh, sometimes intellectual and developmental disabilities, but they're all winding up there if they have uh, some kind of charge. Um, so our point is that if you're going to place people like the category that I just mentioned, who are very vulnerable already uh, and in a solitary confinement, 
which we, we call solitary confinement. The uh, law enforcement calls it restrictive housing. So if you place someone in a solitary cell and you leave them there, bad things can happen. Uh, number one, the uh, National Correctional Healthcare uh, Coalition itself has said that solitary confinement is a very serious psychological and sometimes health-related uh, stress, and uh, people deteriorate really uh, fast, and they recommend that it not be used. But you also have, like the World Health Organization has said, solitary confinement is a form of torture. For individuals who have a psychosis, they can often not just deteriorate, but they can often do serious harm to themselves. And this bill was actually prompted by a situation that happened in Boulder, in the Boulder County Jail, where an individual uh, was placed, he had a severe psychosis, he was placed in a jail cell, and he uh, did very serious bodily injury to himself such that he is now blind. Mm. So... Um, we we thought, you know, we got to do better than this. Now, we recognize, and so do the police. Law enforcement is very much um, with all the advocates. Uh, there's no opposition at all to let's get these f folks out of the jails. Let's get them into treatment. Let's get them into hospitals. Let's get them into placements uh, where there aren't none, any right now in order to prevent these kinds of things from happening, because even though they've committed a crime, jail is not the place for the, this population. Now, they can get, once they get restored to competency, uh, I'm assuming that they will be restored to competency, or it's recognized that they cannot be restored to competency, like someone with a developmental disability, you treat the response to what they had done in a different way. Uh, but don't put them in a jail cell, and that's that's number one. However, here we are, and they're in jail cells. So the immediate need here uh, with the House Bill 1211 is to put up some parameters around what happens when and why an individual is placed into solitary confinement so that there is uh, an, an immediate need for a mental health evaluation. Uh, there's an immediate need for um, uh, checkups, such as every 15 minutes making sure they're not injuring themselves in some way. Uh, that kind of thing. So we put in all of those. We did exclude the smaller jails around the state because they don't have the physical plant. Sometimes they don't even have cells. There are a few counties that uh, have agreements with other counties to transport from their county to that one, uh, the contracted county, uh, to hold someone because they don't have cells at all. Uh, mm. So we so we did exempt the rural areas of the state. So I mentioned the legislature put a whole bunch of money into mental health issues this year. Just one part of that allocation <clears throat> is more than $500 million from the federal government that you're following. Obviously, that and all the ones we've mentioned are big steps for the legislature. In just about the 30 seconds we have left, do you think that's enough to have a significant impact on Colorado's behavioral health crisis? Um, it, it it will help for sure. Uh, we are looking at that five hundred and fifty million dollars that we're uh, the legislature has set aside for behavioral health. And by the way, they're going to have an interim committee this summer. So anyone who is interested in following that, just follow the Colorado State uh, webpage. And we're looking at housing, short-term housing, long-term. We need a lot more psychiatric beds. Fort Logan is has a wait list. Pueblo has a wait list. So um, we have to, um, uh, you know. Make the make every dollar count, and may I end with the crisis line number, please? Which is currently it's eight four 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 
1-800-273-TALK. Thank you. Mo Keller is Director of Advocacy for Mental Health Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Putting yourself in another person's shoes is difficult, and it must have been difficult for the man responsible for Colorado prisons, Dean Williams, head of the state's Department of Corrections. Recently, he read a monologue by a former inmate. That inmate, Daniel Gilry, spent more than a decade locked up in the system Williams leads. The reading was part of a Boulders-based MODIS, theater's Just Us project. It features stories by formerly incarcerated people, some read by former inmates themselves. Others read by officials who work in the justice system. Here's Williams reading Daniel Gillery's monologue at a virtual performance in April as Gillery listens. Daniel, I find it an honor to read your story. And with that, I'll be reading Daniel Gillery's monologue entitled Truth, Not Facts. The last time I went to jail, I'd been in there for about 18 months while I was fighting my case. I called my mom Hey, Mama, you guys want to come bond me out? She said, well, let me talk to your sisters, see if we can get up the money. And she talked to my sisters, and they said, nope, no, Ma. He's up to the same thing. He's going to get out and go right back to the drugs, so we ain't in. But my Mama said, well, I'm coming to get you. She went out and got alone and came and got me. I was strong in the word, and I meant it when I said I was done with crack. After my mom bailed me out, I went to pick up my car that had been impounded while I was in jail. Right before they arrested me, they searched my car, tore it up. I mean, tore it up. I had a nice Cadillac, and they pulled everything out of it they could but they hadn't found no dope in the car. I was finally arrested for what they found in my house. I drove my car home and I was slowly putting the insides of it back together when I found a pipe under the front seat with a big old rock right next to it. And I'm thinking, did they set me up? I mean, they had searched my car up and down, even looked at my spare tire and the dope was right there under the seat, just just clear as day. I picked up that rock and that pipe and I put it in my pocket. I said, nope, I ain't gonna do it. But I didn't throw it away. I knew I should have thrown it, but I didn't throw it. And later on that day, I broke it up and hit that thing and boy, whoo, Scotty beamed me up. Woo, as soon as I got beamed up, uh, here comes my mom. I mean, as soon as I took the hit, not 20 seconds later, she came home and saw me. I saw the tears in her big old brown eyes, and I said, Mom, I bet if you had known this, you'd left my ass in there. She looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, No, baby, I still would have come and got you. Sometimes when I tell this story, it makes me weep, just recalling those words. No, baby. I still would have come and got you. Oh, my God. I mean, you could have kicked me or cussed me out. 
But that kind of blatant love makes you butt naked, raw, and vulnerable. There's no defense. It makes you defenseless. Anything else I could have handled. Come on, bring it on. You're a liar, a failure, an addict, worthless, a criminal. That's all you got? Yeah, I can stand up to that. But love and grace will lay you out, butt naked, no clothes on. Oh, my God. That was what made me think differently and the pivotal point that led me to be drug-free today. That's the thing we got to convey to society. It's when a person is broken, messed up, and deserves love the least, that is when they need it most. And that grace is the thing that will give people the 360 right there. The key is helping people remember their importance, understand their magnificence, and then invest in helping them reach their potential instead of punishing them. But the criminal justice system takes all of our shortcomings and faults and it magnifies them. That's all they look at. They take the smallest part of us and make the biggest part of our existence when all this good stuff is just sitting right there, just waiting. It's dormant. It's waiting to grow, but it's not put in the right environment. And then instead, they send us down a dark tunnel into a place of violence at every intersection. Gladiator school where you learn how to place magazines uh, around your belly in case someone tries to stick you. You learn to always step out of your pants if you sit on the toilet in case you're attacked. And when you act out in that violence, they send you further down into the hole where there are no people, just an overflowing toilet, rats, and isolation. If you drop an oak tree into a concrete world, it's still alive in there and vibrant, but it's not growing. It's just dormant. But if you take it from there and drop it in a, in a decent place where there's enough sun, earth, nutrients, you don't even have to plant it. You just put it somewhere it can possibly grow, and that thing would take off on its own. The fact is, all of us in prison are human beings who committed crimes, but that is not our truth. We are not ontologically criminal. That is not our essence. And instead of helping us return to the full truth of who we are, the criminal justice system takes away our names, gives us DOC numbers, robs us of our dignity, freedom, and happiness. And most of all, the potential to be our best selves that we could have been if someone had tried to nurture us instead of neuter us. And how can it change as long as the justice system continues to lie about what it's doing to us? They give us a piece of paper that says, the court is sentencing the defendant to incarceration for 10 years of rehabilitation and is fitted towards the sentence. Rehabilitation, my ass. There's no rehabilitation. When you send us to the Department of Corrections, you're making us more incorrect. There's not a sliver of corrections those of us telling our stories as part of the justice project are fairly new to this whole idea of restorative justice. But we know that telling the truth and taking responsibility for the harm we have caused 
is a big part of it. And we have reflected as a group in our writing process on that harm. But we are also asking the criminal justice system itself to sit in a circle with us and hear the ways we have been harmed because it itself has been criminal in the name of justice. Thank you. Dean Williams has been Colorado's head of corrections since 2019. He's worked to reform the system, lower the state's recidivism rate, reduce the prison population, and replace punishment with rehabilitation. After reading Daniel Gilry's monologue, Williams spoke to the former inmate about his story. Sometimes all you need is one person in your life to help you, whether or not it's a family member, a mom, a dad, a grandma, somebody in your life. Um... If just one person can believe in you and you can't believe in you anymore, um, sometimes that can just be enough, right? The other thing, and just quite frankly, I feel is that I don't like putting myself in your shoes. <laughs> and um, because it's hard. Um, I see the things, Daniel, every day that I don't like. And um, there's quite a number of them. And it's... Um, these are real people's lives. It's your life. And um, I know it's the real deal. This isn't an exercise. These are, you know, just 15,000 people in my custody, 16,000 people in the state, in the custody department of corrections. Closer to 20,000 if you count the halfway houses and other locations. So it's the real deal, and it gets me in the gut. Daniel Gilmery, who spent more than 10 years in prison, followed up with what it was like to hear Williams read his story. My goodness, his authenticity is absolutely transparent. I mean, it's, I, I, I see right through the guy, man. There's nothing opaque, just, and his spirit is, is vibrant, and he, he just affected me in a profound way, and I am deeply, deeply honored and moved by the way he portrayed my story. Thank you very much, Dean. Dean Williams also talked about the impact of Gillery's story on his role as head of corrections. I don't have to agree with everything that the way Daniel viewed it, but if I walked through Daniel's shoes every moment, maybe I would see it the same way, exactly the precisely same way that Daniel saw it, right? But here's the thing. Here's the most important thing. I don't have to agree with everything to try to convince everybody else that something is wrong. Something is wrong. I spent about three years of my old state running that system, trying to convince people there it doesn't have to be this way. It can be better than this. It can be more humane. Dignity can still you know, be in existence with someone's life. Yes. And other countries and other places around the world, they just got it better than us. They've just done it better. It doesn't mean people get away with highway robbery or, or um, there's not a consequence for your actions. There's a consequence for all of our actions. If I drive home too fast tonight, something happens. I crash into somebody. I'm not going to get a total wash out of that, right? But here's the thing. It's not only the level of incarceration that we do in the country that's so high. It's what we've created as a result of it. So uh, I'm on a mission. <laughs> I've been on a mission since I got here, 
and the rest of my team is on a mission to make prisons less traumatic and just a tiny little bit more normal. We have a long way to go. Oh, dear God. Sometimes it seems like too much. Like sometimes I'm like, where do I, where do we begin? But these stories sort of reinforce, of course, that it's worth it, right? It's worth it to be on the journey and in some ways get over our own denial that we've got this whole prison thing figured out. We don't. And it's okay. And I tell my staff and I tell the recruits, it's okay to question what we've been doing. It's okay to say, I don't understand that anymore. Does anybody else? And that we share. There's something wrong. It can be better than this. It can be different than this. I think a, a major part is the system is so bound on behavior modification, how we behave. But that's just the result of how we think. We have to renew the way a person thinks of themselves. And the thing that most likely, for me personally, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what changed my thinking was that grace that grace is a better teacher than punishment. That when my mom granted me that grace that I know I did not deserve, it put my mindset in a place where I, I didn't want to violate that kindness and that thing that she had for me that I didn't even have for myself. So it's how we think that will determine our behavior. If you think right, you'll live right. Daniel Gilmery spent more than a decade in prison in Colorado. Dean Williams heads the state's Department of Corrections. Williams read a monologue Gilmery wrote about his crime, punishment, and rehabilitation. The reading and discussion were produced by Boulder's Modus Theater in April for its Just Us storytelling program, which brings together formerly incarcerated people with officials in the justice system. Next month, Just Us will pair a former prisoner with a district attorney. We'll put a link at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Miguel Otarola, Sam Brash, and Shauna Lewis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.